We have a great panel. We're going to talk about uh, a, a somewhat controversial topic, market concentration. Uh, but I think this should be very, very lively. Uh, we have a great panel. We're going to start with Javier Blas, who's the Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, Javier has a long journalistic background, uh, did great work when he was at the Financial Times, covered the um, many of you remember following uh, all the work he did uh, covering the food price crisis. He's written a great book, uh, Merchants of Grain, many of you know, was written uh, several years ago by, the, by Dan Morgan. Great book. This is one I would highly recommend as well that, that uh, Javier's just come out with um, called The World for Sale. Um, we'll then turn to uh, Swith and Still, who is a founder of Still Grain. Uh, he's a keen observer on markets. Again, if you aren't, haven't followed him in the past, uh, he's on Twitter. Uh, you should. He has uh, just great experience and, and really good insights on what's going on in the grain trade. Swithin will be followed by uh, Jim McDonald, who is a, a research professor at the Department of Ag and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland. But um, he, before that, he was with uh, the uh, Economic Research Service at USDA, where he has written extensively on competition, agricultural um, uh, uh, industries. And he's been a, a liaison between USDA and the Department of Justice on merger cases in agribusiness. And then lastly, uh, our new analyst, uh, fertilizer analyst at um, uh, Amos Delphine Leconte de Merci is, uh, uh, joins us after uh, about 10 years in the ag work in the agricultural commodity sector where she's done consulting on uh, fertilizer trade and risk management. Um, we're very, very happy to have her at Amos and also to have her on this panel where she's going to talk about um, uh, some of the regional concentration issues in, in uh, the fertilizer industry. Okay, so I know we're running late, so I'm going to jump right to Javier, let him go, and then we will have a, a question and answer period at the end with my good colleague, Seth Meyer, who's the USDA Chief Economist and um, uh, Chair of Amos. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, I cannot believe that it's more than 15 years, perhaps 17 years, that you and I started talking uh, when uh, prices were starting to go up in 2007 uh, with wheat and corn prices uh, and on the first of what we call the, the food crisis and that roll caster that we have had in agricultural commodity market scenes. Uh, as Joe said, I am a, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, but today uh, the comments I will be making are only mine. Uh, so that, that's the my, my disclaimer. I'm going to try to be brief on, on a kind of a 30,000 feet uh, overview of, of um, agricultural commodity trading and, and concentration, because I think that the most interesting bit will be use the, the Q&A later with, with Seth Mayer uh, and, and everyone else um, uh, who is just uh, watching this, this panel um, online. So when we look at the, the agricultural sector, you know, what we see on commodity trading. And here I'm, I'm thinking about physical commodity trading rather than trading in derivatives markets. That's more the, the realm of uh, Wall Street and, and hedge funds. Well, um, a lot of the discussion today on concentration on, on agricultural commodity trading is coming because two of the biggest players of the industry have proposed to merge. So that has prompted 
everyone uh, to look at, at the sector a bit more closely. It's a sector that usually doesn't attract many headlines unless something goes very wrong in the, in the world of uh, food supply. Uh, but now there is a bit more of interest. So when we look at this world of agricultural commodity trading, we find that there are six companies globally that dominate the trade jurisdiction in multiple origination and destination markets and also across multiple uh, agricultural commodities that's wheat corn soybeans in particular the first of those six companies are are four companies that we group into a moniker that is called the abcd for the initials of adm bungie Cargill and louis dreyfus that's a bit of a very convenient for journalists like me uh, to abcd fantastic headline, but it's a bit misleading. It's not the whole of the sector. And also the A has changed over time. Uh, if we have looked 20 years ago, the A was Andre, a company that uh, later went uh, belly up, went bankrupt, but it was a big uh, agricultural commodity trader based in Lausanne in Switzerland. And, and the C in reality were two companies, the most powerful for many years was actually Continental, whose um, global trading business later was bought by another C, Cargill, under the, the current status of the ABCD. Uh, they are two other companies that they are very important. So that's what I said, uh, six global companies dominate. Those are Glencore Viterra, Glencore Agriculture, uh, later rebranded re as Viterra and also Kofco, a Chinese-owned company owned by, by the government of China, uh, which consolidated a number of trading operations and processing operations, both domestically and internationally owned by Kofco and a number of other Chinese state-owned companies, including some of them uh, managing the uh, agricultural commodity reserves of the government of China, and more uh, lately, uh, over the last few years, both also international uh, commodity traders uh, to create a, a big uh, global commodity trading operation. So those are the, the kind of the, the six big companies, ADM, Bungie, Cargill, Dreyfus, Viterra, uh, Glencore, and Kofco. On top of that, we have a number of uh, other companies that operate uh, more regionally or even nationally. Uh, we have a number of uh, Russian companies, which are becoming uh, even more important uh, after the uh, war in the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, because uh, uh, Russia is expelling the international traders from his territory. Those uh, Russian commodity traders are, are really crucial for a big chunk of the global wheat trade. Uh, we have a number of companies um, originating um, commodities, agricultural commodities in uh, Latin America, particularly in Brazil, which have developed a, a bit of a, a global reach, uh, also very important. And we have a number of Japanese trading houses or the Shogo Shosha, which have uh, significant uh, agricultural trading operations, particularly in North America, but that mostly uh, do serve as a as a, a conduit to fill the, the short position of Japan uh, as a whole uh, in the agricultural market, and they have limited um, kind of third-party uh, trading operation. Those, that, those are the, the big actors of, of this market, but as I said, a lot of it is concentrated in the hands of, of six companies. Um, interestingly, you know, we are thinking about this concentration, and immediately the, the idea comes are we regulating well this sector? Well, this sector is largely unregulated. 
But um, before we discuss whether there is a need for less concentration or even there is a need for um, more regulation in the sector, I, I will say two th one thing in particular, and is that uh, before we regulate and we think about uh, doing any intervention, the first step is to have better data. I think that one of the biggest problems in the market is that we, we know very little about uh, agricultural commodity trading uh, some of the companies that I mentioned are either um, owned by families, uh, privately owned or owned by governments. They disclose very little information. Uh, in some cases, we don't even know their PNL, their, their profitability. We know uh, we don't know how much how much uh, tons uh, trade every year from where and to to where. Uh, many countries disclose very little data of their. Um, Exports are certainly not timely. It's very uh, rare to enjoy the timeless of uh, the US uh, DA reporting system, which, by the way, is, is um, about to celebrate a, a 50th anniversary. With the, um, uh, in many places, getting data that is less than three months old is almost impossible. And, and it's a sector that every time that regulators or international organizations have taken a look, uh, have been surprised about how little oversight and how little regulation there is. Um, as recent as April this year, the Interna International Monetary Fund took a look at uh, common trading. Uh, they were in particular looking at energy, but it can be applied across the sector. And, and their conclusion was that some very large commodity traders are private companies that they are subject to only very limited or no public reporting requirements at all. And when the European Central Bank on his financial stability review took also a look at the sector, he concluded that commodity traders have largely escaped regulatory scrutiny in the European Union. I am here talking about physical trading. Uh, ironically, we regulate quite tightly the derivatives market, which is the secondary market, but the physical market is largely unregulated. Um, final point, why we are more interested than ever on concentration and regulation of the sector. Well, it's because two of those six companies have proposed that two of the six companies that dominate the market have proposed to merge. That's Bungi and Byterra. As we, 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 we uh, discussed earlier, that's the, the, the name of the Glencore agricultural trading arm. And that's an important merger because it will create the second largest agricultural commodity trader by revenue. And also in reality, although it looks like in effect, a combination of two companies is a combination of four companies in a very short period because initially Glencore bought by Terra in 2012, uh, then renamed itself as by Terra, went to buy Gavilon, which was a significant uh, trader uh, in North America in particular, owned by a Japanese trading house, and now is proposing a merger with Bungi. So it's not to look just this as, as one plus one, two, but in reality, it, it's four companies joining together. And I am going to just stop there, and, and, and I think that it's best if um, uh, others speak, and then we have a, a conversation and, and a Q&A, and I, I welcome your questions, and I really thank uh, Joe and Seth Mayer for having me here today. Thank you. Let me uh, turn to our next panel, Swithin Still. Uh, Swithin, you're on. Hi, Joe. Uh, thanks uh, for inviting me, and um, I hope you can all see me. I'll take my glasses off because I don't need to read anything. Um, I was uh, really enjoying the talk by Javier. 
Um, I have experience at the coal phase of physical commodity trading. And whilst I uh, understand that a lot of the regulators would like to regulate the physical commodity trade, those involved in the physical commodity trade, like myself, uh, like the opacity, the opaqueness of the physical commodity trade. So I think that a lot of commodity traders um, will welcome some transparency, but others will prefer to live in the shadows, um, which is uh, incidentally the title of a book by my friend Jonathan Kingsman, Out of the Shadows, The New Merchants of Grain. Uh, he wrote a fascinating pseudo sequel to The Merchants of Grain by Dan Morgan, which was published back in 79, which talks about the ABCDs, which Javier mentioned, some of uh, whom um, he mentions in his book, which is also excellent, highly recommend it, World for Sale. Um, yeah, so the ABCDs or the ABCCDs or whatever you want to call them now, um, they're being shaken up once again, as Javier mentioned, with the merger of Bungi uh, and uh, Viterra. Is it a merger? Is it a takeover by Bungi? I think that's a, a moot point. I think that there's um, a lot of work to be done with the various monopolies and mergers commissions in the various countries where both are operating uh, because they have a dominant position in soybeans, corn, wheat, um, processing facilities, oil sea crushing, in Brazil, Canada, Australia, um, and then a, a rhetorical question uh, is why there is only one mon monopolies and mergers commission. Uh, that's rather ironic. Um, I digress. Uh, going through to talk about the um, impact of this merger, I think that there will be serious impacts um, and I think that there will be some consolidation in the market as a result. I think um, there's obviously some overlap between the two companies. Uh, Bungi is based here in Geneva. I'm based in Morsch, which is uh, about half an hour outside of Geneva near Lausanne. Uh, Viterra, their grain desk is in uh, Holland near Rotterdam, but they trade out of a small office in Bar, which is uh, near Zug, Zurich. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that all pans out uh, with the various um, sales of assets, uh, which will be necessitated. I think that you know ADM and Cargill will pick up some assets um, along the way. Uh, I'd like also to briefly talk about the consolidation in the Russian grain market, because uh, as we've all seen uh, since uh, a few years now, there's been a serious move by Russia to consolidate their grain market. All of the multinationals uh, in um, June, July this year, they've essentially stopped trading in Russia. So they no longer have origination. Um, I believe that Cargill still has 25% share of one of the port silos in Novorossiysk, the KSK silo. Uh, Bungi withdrew last year. ADM had, uh, I believe, a partnership with a company called Artis, uh, but that I think has fizzled out. And so basically you're left now with essentially Russian linked uh, trading companies who are in charge of the grain market. And um, you've had recent news that the second largest oil seed crusher, Yugurusi, is going to be taken over by the former Minister of Agriculture, Mr. Kachov. 
Um, so you've got uh, the leading uh, grain exporter, Targovi Domrif, which is uh, trading through a Dubai domicile company called uh, Grainflower, formerly known as GTCS. They've been the largest exporter for the last 10 years. Uh, they move 7 million, 8 million tons every year, mostly out of Kavkaz, where they have uh, floating crane facilities. Um, I understand that they are trying to sell these assets at the moment. Let's uh, see if there's yet more consolidation in the market as a result of that uh, soon. I would uh, not exclude it. In fact, uh, if I was a betting man, which I am, I think that the uh, the assets of Targovi Domrif will probably change hands in the next uh, six to 12 months. The other major players are all assets uh, rich. Um, so they all have um, assets like Aston, also out of Kazkaz, major oil seed crusher out of Russia. Uh, we have um, obviously Demetra Group, which was recently sold allegedly. Uh, although um, I think that the, the truth is more prosaic. I think that um, VTB still has some sort of uh, an influence over uh, this company. Uh, they've renamed Demetra Holding as uh, Grain Gates, um, but the people behind uh, remain the same. Uh, there's a former Dreyfus guy who's in charge of that, Ilya Aliyev. Um, and they trade through Solaris Commodities, uh, basically, uh, which I ran from 2012 until 2020, uh, when I was ousted uh, by the new owners three years ago. Um, so that was, uh, that was a fun ride. I was described by Reuters as a veteran trader, which I didn't like very much. Um, I'm not that old, but maybe I am. And yeah, so I've set up my own company in the meantime. I'm still involved in the Russian Black Sea market. Um, so if you want to reach out to me, have any other questions that I might be more comfortable talking about, not on a public webinar, I would be more than happy to uh, hear you and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or other platforms. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that I am on Twitter, uh, despite the um, kind introduction from Mr. Joe Glauber. Um, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but I'm not gonna confirm or deny that I am. Um, I, I think that's about it really. I, I, I'm around, so I, I let the um, mic pass to Seth Mayer, who, uh, I had the honor of sharing a stage with uh, recently. So um, I'll pass it back to you, Joe, and then back to Seth. And if you have any questions, I'm here. Can't hear you. We certainly will on q and I think we certainly will. Yeah, no, we will definitely be back with you. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, okay, so with that, let me change uh, just for a moment and we're gonna move over to uh, the seed industry and I'm gonna, uh, Sorry, I keep losing my audio. Um, I'll bring Jim McDonald up and Jim, take it away. All right, thanks, Joe. Um, Joe asked me to talk about seeds. So what I decided to do is talk about the big mergers several years ago because all of the issues in those mergers, all the competitive issues are still relevant for seeds and for any research intensive agri-food industry. Next, next slide, please. So just to remind you, uh, in a short period of time, mostly in 2016, and then playing out over the next several years, three major mergers were announced. 
Bayer acquired Monsanto, Dow and DuPont merged and then split off their agricultural business into Corteva, and ChemChina acquired Syngenta. So in that series of, of um, acquisitions and mergers, the world's six largest seed and agrochemical firms would combine into four, Bayer, Corteva, ChemChina, and BASF. Um, next slide, please. So um, this was a major antitrust investigation, both in the United States, in the EU, but also in Brazil, in India, in Canada. I'm gonna focus on the US. The issues that arose in the US investigation were very similar to the issues that arose in the EU. I'll keep it short and keep on the US. US antitrust laws prohibit mergers that, in the language of the laws, may substantially lessen competition. Now, like most US laws, that's very general. The specifics are left up to the enforcement agencies and the courts to decide what exactly that means and what the triggers will be. For enforcement agencies in the United States, there are two big issues in any kind of merger and in this merger in particular. First, will the merger lead to higher prices for seed and chemical products? That is uh, the standard sort of monopoly or monopoly power question. But in addition, in this merger, at least as important, was the question of whether the merger would lead to reduced competition in innovation and through less research investment as a result of the merger and fewer innovations in the future. So these were the two big issues that came up and will come up in any merger in a research-oriented industry. Next slide, please. Just to give you an idea of some of the markets that were of concern, but also the measures of concentration for those markets. Uh, as part of the investigation, uh, the Department of Justice in the United States was able to subpoena information from the relevant companies. And um, in the, in the uh, documents that they released as part of the investigation, um, they released a good deal of information on market shares held by each firm in different markets. And what I've done is combine them uh, to give you the estimate combined their Monsanto market share in several markets. Now, what we would have initially thought of and what was really important in the merger was um, genetically engineered seeds. And in particular in cotton, they were the two major producers or in many cases, the only producers of some types of GE traits as well as uh, GE cotton seeds. You can see uh, uh, estimated market shares were extremely high, near monopoly there, but there are other markets as well. If you look over on the right, vegetables and melon seeds, uh, those would also be highly concentrated as a result of the merger of these two firms. And there were several other markets of concern, canola seeds, what we might call, what are called in the, in the documents, foundational herbicides, as well as seed treatments. So a key thing here is in that investigation, the focus was on highly concentrated markets. That is, one to four competitors, really. And it remains true 
through much of the industry that many seed and chemical markets are highly concentrated with just a, a very few rivals. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, to focus on some details, to think about competition and prices, that is, when do we think a merger is likely to lead to uh, more market power and higher prices? Well, concentration matters, of course. Will this merger leave us with two competitors instead of three? That is what we call a three to two uh, merger. Will it leave us with three instead of four? Or will it leave us with eight instead of nine? And concentration matters here. We think it's more likely uh, at higher levels of concentration that a merger is going to lead to the exercise of market power. But that's not the only issue in an investigation. Further question is, are they gonna be able to exercise that market power? And as we list through here, competition among product types matter. Are there, for example, in agrochemicals, competing herbicides with different uh, modes that buyers may be able to switch to? But that also leads to a further issue. How easy is it for buyers to switch, to perceive that there's a competing product out there and to shift over. That type of question arises in any merger investigation. In addition, the ease of entry matters. If a merger combines the only two rivals and they raise price, how likely is it that another firm would be able to enter that market? In these investigations, low concentration, easy entry, ease of buyer switching and substitute products will limit the opportunity to raise price and make it more likely the merger would not be opposed. Next slide, please. Innovation issues are trickier with a lot less data. We trade the, uh, there's an opposing question. Will a merger actually enhance the ability to innovate? perhaps by combining complementary research organizations or provide by providing the size and scale needed for some types of research projects. That was certainly the view in the merger wave in seeds and agrochemicals in the 1990s and 2000s, although it should be said it was a much less concentrated industry back then. Alternatively, will a merger reduce the incentive to innovate? And what we do here is start with the extreme. Suppose there's only two rivals in an industry and they merge. In this case, your research leading to new products will only cannibalize your own sales. You will have a weaker incentive to invest in research in that case, as compared to the case where you may have four or five rivals where your new product will largely take sales away from them. So in that instance, in a highly concentrated industry with very few rivals, there may be much weaker incentives to invest in research. And this um, is a core issue in these types of merger investigations. For the economists out there, this is often framed as Schumpeter, mergers and concentration enhancing the ability to innovate, versus Arrow and at Arrow, uh, mergers to monopoly, cannibalizing sales and providing weaker incentives to innovate. All right, next slide, please. Innovation issues are of growing importance in antitrust enforcement in the United States. 
20 years ago, it was very rare to see any, to see uh, innovation as an issue in a merger investigation. It's been growing though. Most food system merger cases are still only focused on pricing, not on innovation. Currently, Albertsons and Kroger, the proposed merger between two very large supermarket chains, that's about pricing. Uh, Cargill Continental Grain 20 years ago, that was about pricing and whether they would be able to reduce prices paid for grains in the United States to farmers. JBS National Beef, a meat proposed meatpacking merger, that was also focused on pricing for cattle and for beef. Um, but innovation plays a big role, much bigger role now. It started with a precision planting case. Monsanto and Deere each had divisions that produced high-speed planters. DOJ showed that there was a lot of innovation largely growing from the rivalry. That led into a much bigger focus in the seed agrochemical mergers. Um, next slide, please. As we know, the mergers proceeded subject to several significant divestitures. Next slide, please. Now, what are the big issues out of this? First, many seed, ag, chemical, and equipment markets are highly concentrated with very few rivals. So these issues remain in any of these industries. Second, there's a series of issues for the economics of competition and antitrust policy. One, when does high concentration reduce research incentives and investments? Second, when the mergers actually lead to pricing increases, that's a continuing argument within the field of mergers. Third, and a, this is a big issue in US policy and among academics in the last six to seven years, is our current policy too lenient? And then finally, underneath all this, we do use divestitures a lot as a remedy. Does that actually work? Uh, all of these are still open to considerable amounts of research and um, discussion. Uh, that's what I have to say, and uh, thank you. I'm happy to talk more later in discussion. Great, Jim. Thanks so much. Um, that was that was incredibly useful because I think it does give, a, as you say, these are similar questions that are asked by other regulatory bodies. I think, and and I think this was a, just a great way of kind of going through it. Let's uh, let's turn to uh, the fertilizer market uh, for our last speaker, uh, Delphine. Please. Hi, thank you. Uh, well, I will be talking about fertilizer markets, if you can be sharing the slides. Um, I, I will start by giving just an overview of what fertilizer are. So if we can go to the next slide, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I don't know how familiar the audience would be with fertilizers, but in any case, a lot of the topics that has have been covered by my previous panelists are something that we can definitely relate to in the fertilizer industry. So fertilizers, we're talking about the nutrients, well, mineral fertilizers, we're talking about the nutrients that we would be um, bringing to the soil uh, to replace the nutrients that were removed from previous crops. And at global scale, uh, fertilizers are being used for a variety of crops, but maize, wheat, and rice would be making just for those three food crops, uh, half of fertilizer uses. Uh, we also commonly assume that fertilizer is responsible for half of food production at global level. 
So uh, that's the implication for food security that uh, we're gonna need to keep in mind for the rest of the presentation. Here I'll be focusing on nitrogen, phosphates and potash fertilizers because they are the main uh, nutrients. We're bringing in bigger quantities to the crops, but there are a lot of other fertilizers that we could consider. So how do we characterize market concentration on fertilizers? Moving to the next slide, you will see that I've been looking at the number of countries who account for 90% of production. When you're looking at wheat and maize, you have 15 or 16 countries responsible for, for uh, those grain productions. Uh, in the case of nitrogen, using urea as a nitrogen uh, product, we're having the same or similar level of concentration as the one we would be having on the grain industry. On the other hand, for phosphates and potash fertilizer types, we're having way more concentrated markets with only six and five countries making up for 90% of the production. We're talking produ production here, but trade would be similar numbers. Another way to look at market concentration would be displayed in the next slide with um, a, a distribution of fertilizer countries uh, responsible for, well, countries responsible for fertilizer supply. You're having nitrogen with uh, three main countries, China, India, and Russia responsible for half of urea supply. But then you have a whole bunch of countries with significant contribution to urea supply to the world markets. This is because nitrogen is captured from the air. So virtually any country could be a player of nitrogen fertilizer production, except you also need to have the, an access to a reliable source of energy to be able to transform nitrogen from the air to a urea granule to be applied by the farmer. So uh, all those countries with potential access to energy resources could be also uh, displayed in, in the nitrogen production front. However, when you're looking at phosphates and potash markets, as we said earlier, seem a lot more concentrated. Well, you'll be relying on the availability on your territory of uh, either phosphate rock for the production of phosphate fertilizers or potash salt for the production of potash fertilizers. And uh, world is made in such a way that uh, the resources are very unevenly distributed. So for phosphates production, China, Morocco, and the US together make three quarters of the supply. And for potash, Canada, Russia, and Belarus would be making up to 80% of the supply. If we translate that into company names, and I'll be switching to the next slide. Uh, I've displayed here a list of the main fertilizer players for uh, nitrogen, phosphates, and potash market segments. I don't know how familiar you would be with those names, um, but let's make just a few references to revenues last year. Nutrien in 2022 had revenues of 38 billion US dollars. For Yara, for another instance, we are talking about 24 billion US dollars. I'm citing those, only a few of those companies would have data which are published because they would be publicly listed. So now I'm you know, thinking about what my uh, previous colleagues were mentioning. We're missing a lot of information also on the fertilizer industry. We don't have that much light on what's going on, on the volumes, on, on the trends for all of these 
companies, some of them are publicly listed, others are state-owned, others are uh, privately owned. So there is a lot of disparities on the information we would get on those different players. What we can easily know, though, is uh, where those companies are uh, based and their headquarter locations here reflect pretty well the countries that we've been seeing in the previous, in the previous slide. But this hides the global presence of most of these players. If you take Yara, for instance, uh, as a nitrogen, mainly a nitrogen producer, they would be present in 60 countries with offices and distributing their products around 150 countries. So major players in with global presence, not easy either to read their results or their activity because some of them are present specifically in one segment, others are present in different segments. There is a long history of mergers and acquisitions in between different of those companies. So we're having also quite a, a concentrated market in terms of industrial players with a lot of power and also last but not least, pretty reasonable margin levels. Uh, as compared to what we would have in the grain industry. If we move on to the next slide, I've just represented here the price trends in the first chart for nitrogen, phosphates, and potash pricing since 2010. And below that, you have levels of volatility. What we can say from the first chart is that even if those markets have different supply patterns, they still all evolve with similar or at least comparable price trends over the years and they are linked to other commodities either on the raw material side or on the demand side with uh, agricultural commodity pricing but what differs is the level of volatility we would be observing on those markets in the below chart you have price volatility for urea as a proxy for nitrogen in green color and we're seeing that the levels of volatility have been very high over the last few years in the case of potash in red line, so the most concentrated of all those fertilizer markets that I've been mentioning, the volatility has been pretty low over the last 10 to 15 years, owing to having very little amount of suppliers with some peaks, because when you have um, potash coming out of Russia, Belarus, and Canada, only one supply issue can have a lot of impacts on the, on the availability of products. But looking at the last few years, we're seeing that the patterns, not only in terms of pricing, but also in terms of volatility are evolving because of, geo, of the geopolitical context, because of uh, COVID logistic issues, et cetera. So looking at market concentration is definitely one important aspect for understanding fertilizer markets, but there are a lot of other complications or implications that make things uh, way more complex to interpret. So I'll move to the next and last slide, where I'm just dropping some information to understand fertilizers in a broader context. When you have different markets, because within fertilizers between nitrogen, phosphates, and potash, we're talking different supply patterns, but we're also different. We're also talking about different demand patterns with nitrogen being way more widely, widely used than the other two types of fertilizers at global scale with an elasticity to price, which is way smaller for, in, for nitrogen than it is for phosphates and potash. We've seen that in 2022, phosphates and potash uh, uses decreased 
way more than they did for nitrogen in a context of very high fertilizer prices. Then you also have different implications depending on the crops you would be growing. If you're a, a farmer growing soybean, the impact of nitrogen market concentration is very limited because you don't need to be applying nitrogen to this crop, which can capture it from the air by itself. And um, you also have different countries facing different realities based on their reliance on fertilizers because of historical reasons, logistical reasons, or because environmental pressures would make the pattern of use evolve in the future. So I'll be happy to be discussing all those topics on top of market concentration. In the meantime, thank you very much for your attention. Great, Delphine, thanks so much. Very, very uh, useful. Very, uh, I think we'll get it, have opportunity to get a little more uh, into some of this uh, in the Q&As, which we're now gonna turn, I'm gonna bring in Seth Meyer. Seth, turn on that camera. Um, so we don't have much time, Seth. We got uh, uh, roughly a half hour, a uh, lot of material to cover. Just the idea, if you can comment on the, the actual requirements, potential requirements for reporting of things like export sales. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, what I will say is I, I, I would love that if we have uh, something similar to the export sales uh, that the USDA puts daily when there is a big uh, deal or, or weekly um, in, in other jurisdictions, but, but we don't have it. And um, um, yes, that will increase transparency. I think that is ironic that uh, we have a lot more transparency and a lot more requirements for uh, the financial market, which is, as, as his name says, a derivatives market, and we have a lot less transparency for the physical market. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, as, as, as Delphine was mentioning, sorry, Benedict was mentioning, uh, we, we, we have very little of uh, regulatory bodies or, or, or uh, oversight bodies that deal uh, with, with the physical side of the business. And I think that to me, uh, on the debate, we, we, do we need more regulation? Well, the first thing we need is transparency. We need more data. We need, uh, we need data. It's not more data. In, in many cases, we need just the first of the data. We, we don't have uh, enough information to know what's going on. Swift, and you had mentioned uh, that, that sometimes in, in your world, uh, less transparency is actually a good thing. And I, and I get that, but I, it'd be interesting to hear more on that. And um, I mean, obviously we do have a lot of price reporting, things like the uh, Egypt does a great job, I think, re, re, uh, putting out bids. No, they don't. Okay, good. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry to um, shake my finger at you. That was not a meant to be. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, just in regards to your first uh, part of the question, physical traders like um, working in the darkness, if possible. Um, that's one of the reasons why Cargill has remained a privately owned company. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Dreyfus has toyed with the idea of going public and has had a lot of issues with um, the path that they've taken, getting invested in sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there are, like everything, you know, swings and roundabouts, it, good things and bad things about going public. Viterra 
I think they played their hand very well, Glencore, when they sold off uh, their agri-division. Um, my compatriot, Chris Mahoney, I think did a fantastic job. Um, yeah, so we don't like, I mean, I'm speaking broadly, um, as a physical trader, be it in grain, be it in mining, be it in oil, whatever, doesn't matter, sugar, cocoa, you name it. The preference is to be able to leverage your knowledge to be able to buy and sell better. At the end of the day, it's very simple. You're moving product from an area of surplus to an area of deficit. What we do is very simple. What a trader is aiming to do is earn a margin on the transaction, be it sell or buy. And you're transforming in time and space something that you've bought. Okay, so you're adding value along the way. You're buying it inland somewhere, or you're buying FOB from a supplier. You're then transporting it by ship in bulk or in containers. And along the way, you're trying to add value and you're trying to make a margin. Okay, we're not here to feed the world for free. We're not charities. Um, but what we do do is we do feed the world. We do it very efficiently. And the margins that we're talking about are actually very small. So a lot of the people who have no clue about the market that we're involved in, I introduce myself, I say I'm a trader, I'm proud to be a trader. They'll say, oh, you're, you're a kind of, you're raping the planet. No, I'm not raping the planet. You know, it's consensual what I'm doing. I'm buying consensually from a buyer, from a seller. I'm selling to a buyer and I'm just moving product. And actually the margins that we're talking about in grain, they're very small. And if there's any problem along the way, there's a demarrage or there's default risk on the sell side, the buy side, it's a complete headache. I mean, I have two hats. I'm also an arbitrator uh, with an association in London called GAFTA. And for the sake of good order for the record, I'm speaking in a personal capacity. I'm not speaking in uh, any capacity or formal capacity of uh, GAFTA or anything other than I'm a qualified GAFTA arbitrator. I still like um, my job, if you like. It's a paid hobby, if you like, because <laughs> it's always good to learn from your mistakes, but it's much, much cheaper learning from the mistakes of other people. So I see a lot of disputes and, and I'm able to pass on that knowledge to the people I work with and say, make sure you do this appropriation in this way, or make sure you write this in your email uh, because it costs millions of dollars if you do it wrong. And there's a market difference of $40, nothing personal, just business. They will send you in default and you will have lost a hell of a lot of money because the guy or girl in operations who's you know on a relatively meager salary, he had to go home, she had to go home at five o'clock, didn't send that message, bang, you're in default. Um, in regards to your second part of the question, GASC is one of the most fantastic uh, benchmarks for pricing wheat in the world. Um, Egypt, as you know, is uh, one of the biggest buyers of wheat in the world, if not the biggest uh, buyer of wheat in the world, between the private sector and the public sector. Uh, GASC has public tenders that are normally announced in the evening after the closure of Chicago. Normally when Chicago has closed in the red down, gas will come in for a tender. 
you can normally tell when there's a tender because the Minister of Agriculture or someone in Cairo will say, we have plentiful supply of wheat. We have supply of wheat for X number of months. And then the next day they announce a tender. So they protest too much, uh, a little bit about how well supplied they are. Everyone knows that they're short wheat. They need to buy wheat. They could buy wheat better. Um, I've tried to suggest to them on a number of occasions how they can do that. Um, what they do do nowadays is they buy wheat outside of tender. So last tender, no Russian wheat was sold. Why? <laughs> the Ministry of Agriculture in Russia, in their infinite wisdom, have put an unofficial official floor price for tenders. Not for private business, but for public tenders. So all of the suppliers of Russian wheat were offering the same price. So they're not just equally intelligent or equally stupid, these people. They were told that you have to offer it at $270, FOB. Whereas, in fact, in private business, private business is being transacted on a cost and freight basis, landed Egypt around $270. So what do gas do? They have now the authority from the government to buy directly from suppliers. So the supplier still has to be reg registered. A supplier still has to put up a bid bond, uh, so like a bank guarantee for $400,000. That's the entry ticket for the party, if you can call it a party, gas tenders. And they've been buying direct. So last week they bought, well, Reuters reported almost half a million tons of Russian wheat. I think there was one vessel of uh, Bulgarian wheat. I understand that it was actually more than that, but I, I can't comment. Um, in any case, it was done outside of tender. The tender terms were uh, 12 and a half protein. I understand that the protein might've been less than uh, 12 and a half, so 11 and a half protein. Therefore, okay, you can't compare apples with or oranges. You know, there's uh, not like for like. In any case, the price I found that was reported at least by Reuters, which is incorrect, but anyway, was around $270, whereas the official tender price was $270 FOB without the freight. That's why they didn't sell a kilo in the tender. Uh, so GASC does do a good job of being a benchmark, but they don't do a very good job, uh, partly because of the, let's say, market manipulation by the Russian Agricultural Ministry, which is not the fault of Egypt, in fact. But they, uh, in, that, in that sale, though, they had, I mean, let, let me, and this will kind of get to this question of, is this really a, I mean, you know, we, we've got a title here that says, it's concentration in the grain trading industry and food security issue. So I, yeah. I guess I come back to you and I come back to Javier and say, yeah, but the last gas bid had like 45 bids with 15 different companies. And yeah. kind of distinguishing between this issue that Joe and Javier raised about the difference between physical and financial seems to me that issues in the physical market are are more directly linked to food security. But Javier, Switzerland, is this a food security issue? I mean, you yeah, hundred and ten percent is a food security issue because listen, Russia is and has been for the last 10, 12 years, if not more the largest wheat exporter in the world. They're not the biggest producer, but they are the largest wheat exporter in the world. And I know a little bit about this. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. 
I came to Washington, Seth, as you know. I mean, I gave a whole talk. I've got the salute of appreciation on my wall from the USDA uh, thanking me for my time. And I gave a whole speech. You can find it online. Swithin Still USDA, it's all there. I think, uh, I don't know, 50 pages of PDF. If, you wanna, if you've got difficulty sleeping, <laughs> you can read it. <laughs> no, it's actually quite interesting, but you know, not everyone's interested in uh, Russian wheat statistics. It's incredible, though, the turnaround from the largest wheat importer during the Great Grain Robbery to the largest exporter. The turnaround has been absolutely incredible. And it's been to the detriment of the USA. US has, uh, I think, the lowest plantings of wheat in the last hundred years, the last few years, because no one wants to grow wheat anymore. It doesn't really calculate. You know, what people in the Midwest, they want to plant corn and beans. They don't want to be planting wheat. Um, so, yeah. I was promoting Russian wheat my whole career. You know, I went to France. I spoke to a bunch of cooperative uh, farmers in France in 2016. Gave this whole speech in French, teasing my French friends, um, teasing as a sign of affection. And I'm British, so of course I'm going to tease the French, you know. Uh, I was saying, guys, wake up and smell the coffee. Russian wheat is coming and going to eat into your market share, into your major markets in French-speaking West Africa. I was already selling Russian wheat to French-speaking West Africa, Senegal, Côte d'Ivoire, Morocco, Algeria. I said, I've got to go. I finished my speech. I've got to go. I'm on a plane to Algeria. Ha, ha, ha. What happened? Who, who's the biggest shipper of uh, wheat to Algeria now? It's Russian. Uh, this, this, right. this raises a bigger issue as well. I mean, Javier, when you said ABCDs, you said the second C being Costco. I mean, to me, there's a real issue with commercials versus state-owned enterprise, and Swithin calls out Russian export control. But the other side of this is the dominance of the Chinese in the importation market. And, and, and one can characterize soybean markets very differently than corn markets into China. One, soybeans is very open, and you have a lot of people shipping. And then corn markets are very closed, and Costco dominates and can extract the rents from doing so. So I guess my, you know, should we be thinking about this differently? Is are 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 the ABC commercial ABCDs better able to be controlled, and the state-owned enterprise or the state-owned enterprise more of a problem for food security? Uh, I think that certainly uh, state-owned companies are going to be more complicated to uh, to extract information. Uh, I mean, the the Kofco is an international commodity trader, but it, it has two hats. It has that hat of a commercial enterprise driven with traders located in, in Geneva, trading the wall, very similar to what you will expect, say, at Cargill or at, uh, at Dreyfus. And at the same time, he has a, another hat, probably a much larger hat, that is making sure that China enjoys food security, that uh, China gets the crops, and that there is a dispute, say, you know, a few years ago between the United States and, and China trade war. Uh, Kofco was absolutely crucial on redirecting where China was sourcing a lot of the agricultural commodities from the United States into uh, Latin America, and particularly Brazil. And, and it has, obviously, Kofco has no interest whatsoever in revealing any information whatsoever of what they are doing. At the same way that, um, uh, I, I do remember going uh, a few years back into uh, uh, 
you know, uh, one of the major, major importers of agricultural commodities and asking a, a senior official about their elevated stockpiles and the fact that at the same time they were importing, I said, oh, well, you know, you should not really pay any attention whatsoever to what we report to the FAO for our level of stockpiles, because obviously those numbers are not, not real, they are political. Um, so yes, I mean, states lie on the information that they provide because this is a very serious business for many of those countries. This is about food security uh, and, and therefore, um, you know, providing extra information may be detrimental. That's why we don't have a system like the USDA with everyone reporting, because it's not about just we should get more information, not just on the exporting side. I mean, the US does a fantastic job providing all this information about exports, but it will be great to have a, a lot more information, a lot more clarity on the import side. I mean, we will. I would love to to have an information of how much you know weekly data on how much really Egypt is buying and from who and at what price, what China is buying and from whom, how much Japan is importing. But I, I will give you an example about uh, statistics, and it doesn't come from the agricultural side; it comes from oil. But if you look today at um, the recent months about how much oil China has bought from Iran and the official Chinese statistics custom data will tell you that it has not bought a single barrel of oil. If you look at how much oil China has bought from in, uh, Malaysia, it will tell you that it has been buying about one and a half million barrels a day. And here is the problem. The country only produces about half a million. So how is it possible that China is buying three times the real production? Well, the reality is that those are, uh, you know, uh, counterfeit uh, smuggled barrels from, from Iran. And, um, and, 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 and something similar probably happens with the uh, agricultural statistics. You do not, you, you cannot trust some of the data from, from particular countries. I mean, simply the, the, the statistics are, are not real. They, they have a, a political purpose. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, very definitely the um, I, I know part of the problem that, that we've struggled with at, at Amos, for example, is is just trying to get our whole our hands on this sort of data. I mean, stock data is probably the key, but even export data, you, you look, uh, you know, which which, you know, the U.N. system's great. Uh, but when countries don't report imports or don't report exports, you're at a loss, and particularly when they're big players. So the fact that Belarus and, and Russia stopped reporting the exports last year uh, has created issues. We, it's been picked up. The IGC does a great job uh, with the WTO right now doing real-time uh, exports and shipments. But again, trying to get a, a handle on this data for, for market information for so to provide this in a monthly basis or a daily basis or whatever um, is just is is a challenge. And I think the the, the irony about the the Kafka issue is I, I think in one sense you know with with accession of China to the WTO one of the things they agreed to was open up some of those quotas to more commercial trade that is not just being dominated by the state-owned enterprises. Unfortunately, when you get things like trade wars going on, what happens then, and even with this so-called phase one agreement, is that all of a sudden you're right back into the state-owned enterprises in terms of, of them controlling the, the trade. So um, yeah, it's, it, it's an issue. Seth, do you want to take it? Oh yeah, no, no. And I just, I, I guess I throw one more thing in there and say, it isn't just about food security, Javier. 
It's also about $50 a metric ton, importing millions of metric tons of corn that, that's, and, and being able to control the internal price in, in China for feed corn as well, too. So I think that, that there, there's, it, it's a complicated issue for which, um, you know, I, I think we have to include those state-owned enterprises as being a bit different than the commercials. And, and, uh, I, I agree. And I, when I was sorry, when I was saying food security, I, met, uh, I, I, I was just speaking on a broad term. Uh, I just mean, you know, food security, the, the fact that there has to be the, 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 the food on the plate, but also what price is, is, is that food? I, I mean, one of the things I will add very briefly is one of the strengths of the ABCD and then, you know, Kofco and, and Glencore there is that generally they have much better information than everyone else. They, they, they are, um, you know, they, they employ hundreds of analysts, they have much better data, they have their own weather stations around the world, uh, they usually are ahead, I mean, I, I know that the USDA and the, and the Worsley system uh, and the board do a fantastic job and is the gold standard of, of the data, but normally, uh, generally, the agricultural trading houses are a step ahead of you because they, they are, you know, they, they are doing some of the, the calculations of the global S&D, particularly at times of stress, when there has been a big drought here or there, they are updating those global S&Ds almost on a daily basis and trading on a daily basis based on those updates where we are getting, you know, USDA information only on a monthly basis. Yeah, look, uh, I, I see Swithin has his hand up. Uh, Swithin, quick comment from you, uh, because I, I want to get back to some of the other uh, <laughs> discussions as well. But please go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Joe. No, I just wanted to jump in because uh, I think it's important to say uh, that one of the biggest uh, lacunae of uh, the lack of information and transparency on supply and demand statistics, indeed, comes from the biggest players, you know, the biggest importers and the biggest exporters. Um, China being a notable one. Um, analysts in China, they don't dare to tell the truth as they know it because they will get um, in hot water. Uh, I think that's um, a euphemism. Uh, I mean, there were analysts who were reporting very interesting uh, statistics on import uh, of soybeans, for example, and other commodities into China. And then they disappeared. They just disappeared. And no one really knew what happened to them, where they went. And it turned out that they had been, um, they'd been in turn taken away, questioning, why are you sharing this data internationally? Why are you selling this information? It's very sensitive. Because the Chinese, uh, want to have the control over what is reported for food security, for their own food security. They don't want people to know about the state of their corn stocks. They don't even maybe know themselves how much corn they really have and whether it's possible to actually use that corn for feed compounds, for pigs, or whether it's only suitable for burning as biofuel. So it's very, very sensitive. Yeah. Likewise, it's a legal requirement for Egypt, um, I believe, to have at least five months, if not six months, of wheat supply for food security. So, you know, when the agriculture minister or someone in the government comes out and says, oh, we've got, you know, 
such and such uh, stock of wheat, well, that's a legal requirement. It's not a, you know, <laughs> happy days, we've got this. You have to have that. And the key is in the name, general authority for the supply of commodities, GASC. They have to supply the commodities that the country needs. And you're not going to get the data because they don't want you to have the data because they want to buy better. Every buyer in the world is going to say, oh, I'm comfortable. Oh, don't look at me. I've covered. And then, hey, presto, he hasn't covered. He's lying through his teeth because he wants the market to think that, oh, they're covered. OK, there's no demand there. So he wants the price to come down. But unfortunately, traders aren't that stupid. Buyers who protest too much and say, well, we're covered. Chances are they're being disingenuous. So, so I, I, and, and part of this is, you know, I, I, when I have, have to go abroad and represent the USDA, sometimes I say, hey, there's responsibilities in exporting countries. The responsibility is to be a reliable supplier and to be transparent. And I think that, you know, when importing countries also protest and say, hey, you know, and think about self-sufficiency or the need for reliable trading partners, I also think they have a certain responsibility. And, but, but, you know, I'm a markets guy. So I, I think I want to throw a question out to Jim also in saying, hey, you know, are, are, there, are there functions here? Are there functions of government that, that you think make a lot of sense that don't have large, say, negative impacts and might even enhance market transparency? We know traders don't want to share their information, but part of the, the information that we provide says you get to take advantage of it, but only for so long. And then we level the training field. Do you have some thoughts about, hey, what are appropriate government regulations? What, what are the downsides of doing so? Well, I, I actually had a different reaction to an earlier comment of yours, but I'll just throw Please. out no, in terms of providing information. Um, should we have introduced WASDI? It was certainly easier for private firms to trade before that, as we found out. But I'll leave that aside. Seth's original point was the same one I often have if we get back to Joe's original question of, should we worry about Bungie and Viterra merging? Geez, when I look at those Egyptian tenders like Seth, I see an awful lot of firms. And I listen to the presentations here, and I all, people always bring up ABCD. And then the experts, people speaking here, tell me, oh, but you know, those letters change over time. You know, it's different companies. So to me, you know, there's a real question for Joe's original point. Do we expect a merger of Bungie Viterra to lead to either lower prices paid to farmers or higher prices charged to importers? And I I'm certainly not convinced that. My original note, so it doesn't look well that concentrated to me. Uh, but I could certainly be disabused of that. Well, here's a quick question for you. Uh, I, I would say yes, we've we should have introduced the WASDI, but that's kind of a global playing field leveling. Does the fact that the U.S. do export sales reporting put us at a disadvantage when other countries that emerge like Brazil don't? I don't think so, but. Okay. Good. <laughs> we don't do we do we report who the exporter is? No. We don't I mean, because 
Uh, yeah, we needed we needed to release confidential data on concentration of exports in the Cargill Continental merger. We provided that to DOJ, and that was important. I don't think we report concentration data. Um, it's that, that would be useful to me. I'm not sure how useful it would be to participants in the market. Joe. Yeah. Look, look. We're almost out of time. I I, I wanted to come back to Benedict. I mean, not to Benedict, to uh, Delphine, who hasn't had a chance yet. And and um, Delphine, you mentioned this past year, and I think it's been an incredible year of in agricultural markets, but also in the fertilizer markets in particular. I mean, you look at energy prices, so all the natural gas, coal, all these things dominating uh, uh, on on the nitrogen side. You have two of the major uh, uh, potash producers out of, essentially out of the market for a, for a while. Belarus almost entirely uh, because of sanctions predating the uh, the war itself, and then also uh, with Russia's difficulties, particularly in the first few months of the war, exporting potash, and then you have uh, uh, you know export restrictions from China and others on on phosphates. Um, you know, so it's a market that's been roiled a lot yet. Generally, I guess what I'm asking is, how have the how have the markets worked? I, it seems to me prices now are down; they're back to pre-war levels. Uh, volatility is still there, but it's it volatility is there in a lot of markets right now. Wheat is at a, a historic, a, 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 at least relative to the last ten years, still at trading it with a lot of volatility there. So, just uh, interested in your reaction. Yes, well, I guess volatility, as you were saying, has been uh, visible in a lot of commodity markets. The reality on the fertilizer markets is no different. Uh, I just want to take the example you mentioned uh, with the difficulty of getting potash out of Belarus or, or difficulties to export fertilizers out of Russia, just to illustrate the fact that the market uh, is very or a lot more resilient than a lot of us would have expected or thought of at the beginning of the crisis, right? So indeed you're having some major players being out of the out of the market for uh, political reasons or geopolitical reasons, but not all the importing countries would be applying the same kind of sanctions or having the same kind of relationship to countries like Russia or Belarus, for instance. So I don't think we need to, we can generalize that, even if it has a huge impact to have Belarus and Russia virtually under sanctions at global level, but you're also having other countries which are huge takers of potash and huge uh, producers of food crops that can still rely on these kind of origins. So it's it has been a lot of uncertainty, a lot of nervousity on the markets, but at the end of the day, um, there is no major reason to be uh, worried about global availability of fertilizers at the moment. We're not in a situation where suddenly we're running out of phosphates. It's, it's not the case. We are not running out of, of those uh, raw materials, at least not in the short term. So it's more a matter of, of markets being resilient and, and shifting logistics. And, and I guess I'll link that to um, market concentration. You also need to have companies which are flexible and capable of shifting 
their their trade from one place to another and having relationships in different countries and having the logistical capabilities of uh, of shifting trade flows from one place to another so yes market concentration has some sides which can be uh, criticized but on the other hand those players same as in the grain industry you mentioned the private players or the industrial players would be the ones who have the best access to information and the best decision to be able to um, bring those fertilizers from one place to another in the most efficient way. All right. Unfortunately, everyone, we're going to have to go. Uh, this has been great. I apologize for the late start, uh, but this is uh, it just we're very, very happy that that everyone was able to hang with us and get everything. Seth, do you have any final comments? No, you better not get me started. I'd like okay. to. Okay. All right. Well, let me, again, let me thank all the production people at, at uh, IFPRI 